0: I'm going to invite Zach forward for our sermon scripture reading. Uh, Zach is going to be reading from, as you can see it, on the back middle portion of your worship guide from Luke chapter 9. You can turn there now if you've got your Bible or if you've got your worship guide in front of you. We'll be reading from Luke 9 in a moment. As I always do, I don't mind being repetitious, let me just introduce the Gospel of Luke to you so you know what's going on. The Gospel of Luke is a first century document. It's very, very old. And in it, the good Dr. Luke, uh, as, we, as we know uh, the writer is, um, he's trying to describe the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, who is described variously throughout the pages of Scripture as the Son of God, as Emmanuel, who is God with us. Luke is basing this writing on first-century eyewitness records of those who follow Jesus. And so we are to read Luke as a historically accurate, faithful, trustworthy account of who Jesus is, what he came to do, and why that should matter to us. Luke writes with an angle. He, he, he's trying to achieve something with this gospel. And, and it's so his readers, whether they live in the first century or they live in the 21st century, would believe the good news about Jesus, that they would find their rest, they would find their peace with God through this Jesus, and that they would give their lives to following him wherever he leads them. Our text this morning in Luke 9 is actually a, a, a significant turning point in all of the book of Luke. Um, this is where Jesus' identity, uh, this week and next week really, uh, this is where Jesus' identity is more clearly realized than ever before. Zach. Luke nine eighteen
1: through 27. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who did the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day, Be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me, and of, of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father, and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word given to your people. Uh, We pray that as we listen to your voice speaking to us in the pages of scripture, uh, that you would cause us to not only obey all that you command us to, but that we would trust all that you ask us to trust, uh, that we would feel uh, as you would have us feel, that we would know what you would want us to know. So Father, help us now, send your spirit. We ask that in Christ's name, amen. Uh, Apparently, Apparently, the royal family is kind of a big deal. If you're walking through the airport, maybe you've seen a book floating about. It's been pretty popular. It's called Spare. It's written by Prince Harry. Um, I will have some royal details probably wrong, and so you know, don't, don't get angry or throw things at me right now. This is, this is an outsider's perspective. But if you have been following some of the, the drama with the royal family, maybe you're familiar with this storyline. Prince Harry has an older brother named Prince William. I, I hope I'm, I'm, I'm right so far. Um, Prince William is the heir of the British throne. And so Harry, who is the younger brother, he's known as the Spare. So William is the heir, but Harry is the Spare. Harry, from the time he was born, he was told something very specific about who he was, what he must do, who he was to become. And he writes in his autobiography, which is called Spare, um, I was the shadow The support. I was plan B. I was brought into this world in case something happened to William. I was summoned to provide backup, distraction, diversion, and if necessary, a spare part. Kidney, perhaps. Blood transfusion. Speck of bone marrow. This was all made explicitly clear to me from the start of life's journey and regularly reinforced thereafter. And if you know the story of kind of the fallout of what's been happening in the last year or so, you know that Harry, who was was tired of being the spare, tired of being treated like the spare, left England. He resigned from his royal duties, and he chose to pursue his own path, to find his own meaning, to to, to not live out the one that was given to him, assigned to him at birth. His decision, it made a lot of people pretty upset, uh, but it really shouldn't be too surprising to any of us. And this is because the world that we live in, especially in the West, is highly individualistic. We live in a culture that encourages us to carve out our own path in life, to find our own way through life, really is not just like one option of many. For many, this is the only true option for people who want to live authentic and fully realized human lives. The idea that a person should fit into a particular mold, particularly one of service, a life dedicated to the service of another, it feels paternalistic, it feels rigid, it feels unfair and unjust. The weight of freedom and happiness and peace, what we really long for and we're trained to believe, is achieved by focusing on ourselves, focusing on our own journey, doing what's right for us. In Luke chapter 9, Peter rightly identifies just who Jesus is. If you look at verse nine 19 of our text jesus asks his disciples who the crowds say he is the crowds are this this mass of people that have been following jesus around through his teaching and healing ministry in northern galilee and the disciples get back the report look at the text there the crowd thinks that jesus might be a variety of important figures perhaps he's a powerful prophet like the ones god had sent to israel long ago maybe he's the second coming of john the baptist or elijah again really big names but then in verse 20 jesus asks his disciples a far more pointed question This is a question that he asks you and me this is perhaps the most important question that you will have to answer but who do you say i am who do you say i am peter's response to this question is right on it's correct you're the christ of god and this is like i said this is kind of like a watershed moment in luke's gospel so far in luke's gospel only the narrator Uh, some of the angels and some demons in the story have properly identified that Jesus is the Christ. The disciples so far, they haven't said anything about this, but but this is the first time where one of the disciples understands and pinpoints Jesus' true identity. He is the Christ of God. Christ is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah, and this is a title. This is like a defined role filled with set expectations, like the titles heir or spare might bring. The Messiah is a figure that the Jewish people of the first century, when when Luke is writing and Jesus is ministering to, the Messiah is a character that they're waiting for, they're longing for. In the hundreds of years leading up to the coming of Jesus, God had sent prophets to his people um, that told them that the Messiah is coming, the Christ is coming. This person would be like a king. He would rule over his people. He would protect and lead them. He would bring them into a new age of God's power and presence. He would inaugurate the kingdom of God. This was all very good news. And the way that a first-century Jew might understand how the Messiah would accomplish this work is, is that he would be a warrior. You know, He would take up the sword. He would be this glorious, powerful military and political figure. Uh, in our call to worship, we read from Psalm 24, which, which sees the Lord as one who is strong and mighty in battle. But as, as we begin to follow Jesus christ we see that the picture is far more different than that to be the christ of god means something else entirely it requires an entirely different kind of life than what first century jews were expecting he would live And what our outline this morning for the sermon is going to do is it's going to take that that pivotal central revelation of who jesus is that he's the christ and we're going to build off of that three important consequences of that reality things that naturally flow and follow from christ from jesus being the christ so so this is our outline jesus is the christ of god therefore and then we'll go through three different consequences hope that's clear so this is the first one jesus is the christ of god therefore he must endure suffering jesus is the christ of god therefore he must endure suffering in in verse 21 if you look at it there jesus strictly charges peter and the disciples to not tell anyone that he's the christ that might strike you as a little strange if you've been in our mark study that we that we've been doing over the last couple of years we've come across this a whole bunch uh there's there's a name that scholars of of the bible uh use to describe what's going on here uh, they call it the messianic secret whenever jesus and it happens a lot throughout the gospels whenever he tells people to be quiet about who he is and about his his identity as the christ this is known as the messianic secret essentially Jesus doesn't want his disciples to reveal who he is publicly. doesn't want them to to broadcast that he is the Messiah because, and this is the reason, his rescuing work can really only be fully understood after his suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection. Again, the crowds are expecting the Messiah to come to be a warrior, to be a winner. But if you look carefully at verse 22, Jesus says you've got it all wrong. You're misunderstanding what the christ is meant to do look at verse in verse 22 the son of man this is jesus's title for himself the son of man must suffer he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes he must be killed and he must on the third day be raised now we meditated on this on good friday just a few weeks ago jesus's suffering and rejection and death was purposeful it was for our sin and for our salvation that's the meaning and purpose of his suffering it wasn't just a a meaningless execution the way that jesus was to accomplish his work as the messiah again the messiah is here to lead to rescue to protect his people it was to willingly take on the judgment of god due for our sin this is what jesus did on the cross some 500 years before christ was born the prophet isaiah wrote about the messiah's suffering. This is in Isaiah chapter 53. Let me just read a couple of verses from it. He, this Messiah, was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of Saul. Again, it's important for us to, to not lose sight of how important Christ's suffering is to his work as the Messiah. And it's also hard for us to imagine the depth of suffering that Jesus had to go through for us. They arrested Jesus on false charges. They unlawfully detained him. This, this unfairness that he experienced was, was to another level than you and I have. People hated him. They insulted and spat on him. They lied about him. He was abandoned by his closest friends. His family thought he was crazy. The elders and the chief priests and the scribes, the people that were most respected in that culture, the people that everyone wanted, um, wanted their, their seal of approval, these were the people that led the charge against Christ. And then he was, he was whipped, he was crucified, he was killed publicly. This is incredible suffering. But Jesus is pointing out here, if you want to understand who the Christ is, this suffering isn't incidental. It's not accidental. This was the plan for the Messiah. This was laid out for him before he was even born. Jesus is the Christ of God. Therefore, to rescue, forgive, and restore you and I, he must endure suffering for us. He must. So, that's the first part. Jesus is the Christ of God. Therefore, the first consequence of this is he must endure suffering. But here's the second consequence. Those who follow him must endure suffering too. Because Jesus is the Christ of God, therefore, those who follow him must endure suffering too. Here's a really simple principle. You can write it down if you want to. You could probably remember it after I say it. If you want to follow someone, you have to follow them where they're going. All right, hopefully, I didn't, hopefully I didn't blow your mind there. Okay? This is, I can repeat it if you need to. You can get my notes after. If you want to follow someone, you have to follow them where they're going. Jesus is the Christ of God. He's come to rescue and lead his people. And if you're to follow his lead, you need to follow him where he goes. This is what the Christ is called to do. Isaiah 53 describes his people like sheep in need of a shepherd. Jesus is that shepherd. He gathers his lost sheep, people who are without hope, people who know their deep need for rescue, and he calls them to come and follow him, to trust his leading, to go where he will lead them, to be fed and to be healed by him. Look at verse 23. Where will the Christ lead his people? What's the direction that he wants them to go? Where does following Jesus take us? We go where he goes, which is the road of suffering. Right? Verse 23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So, so listen, listen to what Jesus is saying. If you want to follow Jesus, you must deny yourself that, that's uh, in greek that uh, let him is, is an imperative it's a command to deny yourself means to um give up personal control of your life to cede it to christ to take up your cross means taking up a life of voluntary suffering and self-sacrifice and this is probably the worst sales pitch ever right for following jesus if you're interested in following jesus though you have to lock on to this the christ must endure suffering and those who follow him must endure suffering too on sundays we've been using the language of being apprentices of jesus so so if you if you observe the things that jesus does as he loves and he serves other people guess what he's not just going to teach you about it he's going to involve you in that kind of work and something similar is at play here if jesus lives a life of laying down his life for the good of others enduring the shame and rejection and suffering and even death uh that's required to fully trust and obey God, guess what? He's going to involve his people in that work too. Not just going to teach them about it. He's going to bring them into it. If you look at our text, Jesus is actually really emphatic with his warnings here. He he repeats himself often to get the same point across. Not just that we should expect suffering as followers of Christ, but also what running away from this suffering actually says about us and about our faith and our relationship to God. Basically, it's this, and this is important to hear. If you're not willing to follow Jesus into suffering, Jesus says, you're not actually following him. If you're not willing to follow Jesus where he leads into the suffering that following him brings, Jesus says, you're not following me. So look at in verse 24, look at the text there. Jesus describes people who, instead of denying themselves... They try to save themselves. They just live how they want to live. Like, no one can tell me how to live my life. I want to live the authentic, fully realized life that I want to live, and only I can determine that. And Jesus says that such people, in the end, they actually lose their lives. Look at verse 25. Jesus describes people who, instead of taking up their cross daily, they seek to gain the whole world instead. They're not going to let Jesus tell them, you know, who they are and what they must be or become, that's so restrictive. Only I can determine that. And Jesus says to those people in the end, they will lose whatever they think that they've gained. Look at verse 26. Jesus describes people who instead of gladly and boldly following Christ, they're ashamed of him. They're ashamed of his words. They're embarrassed and ashamed about, you know, the ethics of the Bible or or Jesus' exclusive claims and Jesus says he will be ashamed and turn from them in the time to come. These are heavy words uh, for us and, 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 and certainly to the disciples so long ago. Because in the years just ahead for these disciples, being a follower of Jesus would cost them everything. Right? This, wasn't, this wasn't a light thing to take on. What we see historically, what we read in the pages of Scripture, is that the government and the religious leaders aligned together to continue to reject and hate and persecute and arrest and kill Followers of Jesus. His disciples would go on to lose everything. They'd lose their homes, their family, their jobs, opportunities. And for most of them, most of these disciples who were gathered around Jesus here, they would lose their very lives just for being faithful followers of Jesus. Now, now the way, of course, to, to avoid that kind of heat, it was a pretty simple process. They could simply deny their faith, deny Christ, take control of their own lives, stop following Jesus on the road to suffering. It, it wasn't that complicated. As the pastor Scott Sauls puts it, they could have taken up the all-too-common self-serving version of Christ's command here. They could choose to deny their neighbors, take up their comforts, and follow their dreams. Right? And maybe you've got this same temptation this morning, because to follow Christ today is also costly. To be a person who, who publicly speaks about, lives out their life, uh, lives out their faith consistently... Uh, who is bold and honest about who Jesus is and what he came to do and why it matters to everyone, this is to invite the very real possibility that the people around you will reject you, that they'll think less of you, that they'll mock you. If you deny yourself and take up your cross daily to follow Jesus, if you live a life that is unashamed of him and his words, like Jesus, you'll suffer loss. You'll be mocked privately or publicly even. To follow Jesus means you may lose friends, you may lose job opportunities, you might not get invited to certain parties anymore. You may be openly mocked, slandered, whispered about, insulted, or even worse. And for many Christians in the church, this is the pain point where they've tapped out and have decided to stop following Jesus. Like I'm willing to follow Jesus in a way that there's no personal risk to me, Right? I want to follow him in a way where I won't be rejected or face suffering. So I'll, I'll just stay quiet about my faith. I'll ignore, I'll try to change parts uh, that, that make, you know, modern Canadians not really like the Christian faith. And I'll just follow Jesus in my own way. But what Jesus is saying really clearly here, friends, is that, is that cannot be done. If you're not willing to follow Jesus into suffering, Jesus says, you're not following him at all. And this is the point from this text. Jesus is the Christ of God. Therefore, those who follow him will endure suffering too. This is how the Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle described it in in the late 19th century. He said this. Again, very hard words. The wickedness of being ashamed of Christ is very great. It is proof of unbelief. It shows that we care more for the praises of men whom we can see than that of God who we cannot see. So this is what Jesus is saying in Luke 9. He is the Christ. Therefore, some things flow from this. He must endure suffering. We must endure suffering too. But there's a third consequence to this. Jesus is the Christ of God. Therefore, after the cross, he promises the crown. Jesus is the Christ of God. Therefore, after the cross, he promises the crown. This is the message of Jesus' suffering. His suffering isn't the final word. All right? In, in verse 22, if you look at it there, Jesus' mission as the cross isn't one of unending suffering, of, of the finality of rejection and death. No, resurrection is promised new, unending life in all its fullness. Look at verse 26. Jesus promises that, that while, while he's weak and despised now, one day he will come in the glory of his Father, the glory of the holy angels. His humiliation is not the last word. Look at verse 27. He gives the hope that even as his disciples suffer, some of the disciples who are standing there before they die, they will see the first glimmers of his kingdom being shaped in this world. Because after the cross, Jesus promises to his people that. After their suffering, he promises to them the crown. After humiliation, there'll be exaltation. After suffering, infinite glory. After death, resurrection. And so this is Jesus' invitation to his people, to his church, to deny themselves, to take up their cross daily, to be willing to endure any suffering that following him brings, not because it's some, you know, masochistic, restrictive, soul-destroying, life-robbing enterprise, but, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, will save it. This is what Erasmus writes, uh, uh, in, in, a, in the 7th century or thereabout. To throw everything away for the sake of one's soul is the mark of a prudent person. Not of a fool, but of a prudent person. Somebody who, who judges rightly the reality of this world. Jesus is the Christ of God. He, he is the chosen king for this world. Therefore, he promises to you, he will give you the crown after the cross. Listen to J.C. Ryle again. This is what he writes. Let us resolve never to be ashamed of Christ. Of sin and worldliness, we may well be ashamed. Of Christ and his cause, we have no right to be ashamed at all. Boldness in Christ's service always, always brings its own reward. The boldest of Christians is always the happiest of Christians. If you want to live the life that's truly life, listen, Jesus is telling you it's not found in self-help, self-protection, or self-preservation. It's not found in denying our neighbors, taking up our comforts, and following our dreams. It's found in following Jesus in a life of self-sacrifice and the willingness to suffer for his sake because of this promise, friends. After the cross comes the crown. Maybe you don't feel prepared to follow Jesus like that you don't want to follow jesus if it's dangerous to you if it's if it's shameful in the eyes of others maybe you're you're too scared right now to follow jesus in that way and as we look at the cross of christ together this is what we're remembering that christ willingly faced danger and shame for you he died on the cross for those who were ashamed of him who were scared to follow him so that he could forgive you of that sin and he could set you free from that danger that fear of danger and shame see his love for you his patience for you for us won't you trust him that even if you have to suffer with him you will one day share full joy with him let's end with this uh, prince harry's life from the beginning it has this sort of like spiritual analogy laid over it, at least the way that I I see it. His life from the moment he was born was the calling to take up a humble, self-sacrificial life in the service to another, to the heir, to the coming king, to be willing, if necessary, to endure suffering, to give his own life for the good of the king. This is this kind of life. Uh, Harry, it would seem, and many, many others, maybe you too, would say this seems like no life at all. Giving your life, your whole life in the service of another to willingly endure suffering and loss for their good is deemed to be the wasted life. But what we see in the life of the true king, in Jesus Christ, is a willingness to suffer, be rejected, be hated, and be killed for the good of others, to give his life away for you. For Jesus, this is not the wasted life but the life that is truly lived. Jesus' life was not wasted because after the cross came the crown. And this is his offer to you, to us this morning, to receive and to rest in his work for you and then to follow in his footsteps. To willingly endure suffering for his sake now so that you can share the Christ's eternal joy and glory forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this word that you've given to us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily, to follow you is is a hard word. We thank you for Jesus' example to to us of a life lived in obedience to God and in sacrifice for others. Father, we also thank you that that Jesus' life is not simply an example but is an act of to win forgiveness for us who fail to do that. Lord, would you fill us with thanks Would we reflect on your great and costly love for us and would you then change our hearts so that we can follow after Jesus. Lord, we need help with this and so we ask that you would send it now by your spirit. We pray all that in Christ's name. Amen.